I mean, he's been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 101 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by Audio Technica. I'm your host, John O'Peck. And thank you so much to everyone who tuned in last week for episode 100. Whether you're an old listener, a new listener, you're all very much appreciated. And especially to those who reached out and said congratulations, shared some kind words, said that they'd subscribed for the first time. If you're back, like you said you would be, it really would help to leave an iTunes review or a rating. goes a long way to help the show. Keeps me motivated, not that I need it because I'm on a bit of a high after last week. So this week, episode 101, we've got Blake J. Harris on the podcast, screenplay writer, author of the incredibly popular Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation. That is his first book all about the battle between those two huge video game companies in the 90s, the kind of Apple versus Microsoft style struggle for market share and winning the Console War of the 90s. So great read for anyone who's curious about the behind the scenes politics and marketing approaches it is an incredibly insightful retelling of how that all went down a couple of decades ago but blake also has a book about to come out it is called the history of the future oculus facebook and the revolution that swept virtual reality so this is a very insightful look into the biggest virtual reality company in the world it's oculus purchased by facebook a few years ago and blake had an opportunity to interview stuff from both of those companies with full access so you know there's going to be some really interesting insights there about this evolving platform for entertainment and all the stories and struggles that went behind the scenes i've had a chance to read the first chapter it's really interesting especially about those origins with palmer lucky and how he came up with this technology in a caravan developed it over time kind of pieced together the beginnings of what would become oculus so it was really interesting to talk to blake about the experience of writing both of these books but also a bit of an update on the documentary and TV series that Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are working on and how that came together with Blake. It looks like that TV show is going ahead. It wasn't just someone buying the rights to it and sitting on it. It's probably going to come out in the next couple of years. So that is very exciting. I can't wait to see what happens. So here is Blake J. Harris. Great dude. Great supporter of this podcast. The new book is out on February 19. But until then, enjoy the show. Blake, thank you for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast. It's great to finally uh, have a podcast discussion with you. You and I have been friends online for a couple of years, so it's nice to yeah. have more of a real-life conversation, though we're still far away. That's right. I don't remember how that started, but uh, yeah, it was nice. I think you followed me on Twitter or something, and you sent me. we sent each other like copies of our books. So I've been listening to the audiobook for Console Wars and enjoying that. Nice. As I mentioned, Console Wars, that's probably what you're most well-known for, but... I'm interested how you got to the point of being able to publish that. What was your history that led up to that point? Um, so my history that led up to the point of publishing Console Wars was nothing that led, you know, nothing that would seem to lead to the publication of Console <laughs> right. Wars. Um, and just so your listeners know, I wrote a book that came out in uh, May 2014 called Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation. It's like a behind-the-scenes look at the men and women at Sega, Nintendo, and sort of like the business battle that went on very much inspired by my love of shows like uh, Mad Men and whatnot. Mm. And, you know, I had been wanting to write a book for a very long time since I was uh, probably like a freshman in college. But like I said, it was kind of a an unusual road to get there and certainly didn't feel like I was ever moving in that direction uh, for most of my 20s. And so I guess the quick recap is that I graduated from college at age 22 and 
knew I wanted to be a writer at the time. I thought I'm going to write the great American novel, uh, like so many <laughs> young American writers have thought before. Uh, and I wrote a couple of yeah. really bad novels that never went anywhere. But I also did not even just know like how to move forward, how to try to make a career out of writing. Um, I have a much better idea about that now. It's still not the easiest question to answer because there's so many different trajectories. Um, and I was fortunate enough with mine. But what ended up happening was I started to think that there is absolutely no track for like fiction, prose writing, novel writing. But there is at least some semblance of a track for screenwriting, you know, or I, at least I, I knew people who went to, to film school to be a screenwriter and ended up with some career after that. So that was my plan. And uh, initially, I uh, got a job out of college trading commodities for Brazilian clients. So I was trading uh, sugar and coffee and soybeans. That was like my day job at a financial brokerage in New York. <laughs> and uh, my plan was to save up a bunch of money to go to film school. And then after a year, I did save up a bunch of money that I was going to use to go to film school. But I ended up writing a screenplay with a, with a friend of mine from high school named Jonah Tulis. And mm. him and I decided to produce this screenplay um, and to spend my film school money on that. And uh, we, wrote, we made a mockumentary about competitive rock, paper, scissors and uh, nice. spent several <laughs> years on that. We ended up selling it to Warner Brother Digital Distribution, but it was certainly not the success story that we expected. I mean, I think we ended up selling it for no upfront money and just like royalties. And that was after like four years of working on it. But in our minds, our plan was to, you know, make the movie, win Sundance, get lots of awards and then be offered lots of money. Obviously, that didn't happen. But uh, throughout my 20s, I continued to do uh, screenwriting stuff with uh with my friend jonah and uh, we were at least we, we we never sold a script so we were completely unsuccessful in almost every regard except for the fact that we were able to get representation which was which was significant which is relevant because um then towards i think when i was like 28 or so after uh, you know one of the more <laughs> impactful experiences for my screenwriting career and for me and jonah was that we wrote this script called The Sordid Tales of an Evil Tyrannical Ex-Dictator. And it was about like a Ricky Gervais uh, sort of character who was the dictator of a small, wealthy European country. His life gets threatened and he's on the run and he ends up working at the DMV in New Jersey, sort of like an homage to uh, coming to America yeah. and uh, that sort of a thing. And, uh, and it was actually, uh, at least in my opinion, it was a very good script. It was a script that I expected would uh, you know, officially launch my career. And then about a week or so after we finished it, Sasha Baron Cohen announced that he was doing a movie called The Dictator. And though at that point he had not written a script and nothing had really happened, our script instantly became just about worthless. You know, that experience, that frustration and disappointment, as well as sort of an understanding that like, yeah, that makes sense. If I was a producer or a movie studio, I'd much rather wait for Sasha Baron Cohen's script or take a chance on him than take a chance on Blake and Jonah. Led me to, to sort of realize that you know, I had been writing all this time on the side. I kind of realized that I was turning 30 and clearly writing was something I love to do. And it wasn't going to be the kind of thing where like, all right, if I don't make it by the time I'm 30 or 34 or whatever, I'm going to quit because I was never going to quit. I realized, okay, so I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. It's just probably going to be a hobby. And, uh, and I also realized that there's always going to be a chance that someone much more successful than I or someone maybe more talented than I is working on a project. Um, so I better make sure that what I do work on, I really, really love. And then that ended up leading me to um, console wars uh, and to writing a, a book. You know, initially it was more so, 
it started with my brother buying me a Sega Genesis, which is what him and I had when we were kids growing up here in uh, New York. And um, as an adult at that point, and even now, my favorite kinds of books to read are behind-the-scenes business stories. So before I even wrote Console Wars, I remember going into a Barnes & Noble on 86th Street and asking the woman at the information desk uh, for just one of the books on Sega and Nintendo, assuming that there would be several. Hmm. Um, and I was shocked to learn that no such book existed. They didn't even offer to order me one. And that in the entire store, there wasn't a single book that they sold about video games. The only thing related they had was a walkthrough guide. And, you know, in the movie version of my life story, that would be the moment where I was like, aha, there is a market demand and I will satisfy it. But it wasn't as clean as that. It was more just like, well, that's kind of weird. And then over the next few months, my curiosity um, led me to trying to get in touch with people who had worked at Sega and Nintendo back in the 90s. I started to see that there, at least to me, was a very interesting story that had not really been told and not really explored. And then I uh, ended up starting to put together like an outline and then eventually um, putting together a book proposal. That was how wow. it all got started. There you go. So along the way, had you been dabbling in kind of... Uh, I guess nonfiction, or was it all just these screenplays and that kind of thing? That's a good question because I hadn't at all. Um, you know, I can't. I, I often think that I came to journalism by accident. I definitely feel like a, an outsider in the field, which is usually something mm. that I is a, is a status that I enjoy. And uh, and like it, you know, it was really a trial by fire thing. Like I remember even my first long phone call with Tom Kalinske, who was the Sega of America, uh, the president of Sega of America from 1990 96, and was basically the protagonist of the book like my first call with him I remember first of all trying to figure out like oh how do I record a phone call and is, <laughs> is that legal it's not in a lot of states um and then also and like the software or even the um hardware used to do that like was sold at spy shops and I'm like what am I getting myself into here and then <laughs> also just like what to ask Tom I mean one of the early challenges with console wars was like the two biggest early challenges were figuring out who to speak with because there was no like list of like here were the executives at Sega here were the executives mm. at Nintendo and it was so hard to find that information and then for me the other challenge was having never interviewed anyone before like how to how to go about doing that and actually this is very relevant I think because we're doing a podcast like I had no formal training in journalism and I would have said no experience at all but I did think that from listening to Bill Simmons podcast Adam Carolla podcast and Matthew Barrett on the Fantasy Focus like I did at least have a sense of what kinds of interviews I liked. And all three of those guys had a style that is probably pretty similar to what I developed, which is casual. Um, mm. You know, like I certainly do my homework, but I never prepare questions in advance. I'd like to have more of a conversation than a formal Q&A. And then from there, at some point I had finished putting together my book proposal. I had interviewed about 50 people, had about 50 more I was looking to interview. And then... Ultimately, Console Wars, though it's narrative nonfiction, it is a business story. It is a largely the story of how Sega, with much less money um, and no IP, was able to, <laughs> to topple Nintendo for a period of time and find success. And basically, for me, it was like a you know like a business course. And one of the things that Sega did well and that helped them early on was to align themselves with. Um, younger celebrities, uh, people on the rise. And so I literally Googled celebrity gamers and Seth Rogen's name came up and uh, I learned that he was a big fan of Nintendo. And since I was a big fan of him and liked that idea, I asked my um, my literary manager if he could send over 
uh, some of what I've been putting together, like outlines for the book, to Seth and see if he'd have any interest in being involved with the movie version. Or my friend who I mentioned earlier, Jonah, uh, he suggested we do a documentary. And I thought there was like a million to one chance. I never expected anything to come from that, but it did. And Seth and his business partner, Evan Goldberg, were interested. And I ended up meeting with them on actually uh, exactly seven years ago today, wow. <laughs> uh, January 6th, 2012. That is mental. We'll get into the that whole side of it in a bit because I'm very interested in, in sure. how that's come together. But uh, as far as the interviews and all that kind of thing and you know, not having any journalistic background, did you find a challenge in actually getting people to talk to you? Or was it a case of as often is with uh, journalism, if someone asks you a question, you're just kind of compelled to answer it? (laughs) (laughs) It is true what you describe. Like, I still am surprised by how often people answer questions. And even myself, like, it's like, well, I'm asked the question, I may as well answer it. (laughs) And it's the same with like this podcast. People say, how did you get, you know, this guest or that guest? And it's like, well, I just asked them if they wanted to you know, talk about themselves and right. people seem to enjoy that. Um, that yeah. So I, I probably didn't realize it at the time because I just didn't realize the different techniques you could use to get people to talk or how challenging it might be. But I was, but it was very fortunate for me that when I got in touch with most of the people, especially the people from Sega, this was a very special time in their life. So to sort of oversimplify, I would say their mentality was almost like, oh, finally, someone's interested. Mm. You know, I ended up spent, it took me three years to write that book, like two years researching and interviewing and one year writing it. And definitely the kinds of answers I was getting two and three years into it was different than what I got early on. It was largely, you know, the, the rapport being built with these people was hugely important to getting the intimacy in the book. But for the most part, it was much easier, especially compared to Nintendo, where they weren't willing to talk at all at first. And then with this new book, um, you know, dealing with Facebook and other people that are at big corporations, like it's a whole game or strategy to figure mm. out how to even get them to say anything. Interesting. Okay. And something like that first book where, like you said, it's a it's a nonfiction story. It's it's almost like it's not really a book about video games so much as it's it is a business book. It's a book about marketing. It is a lot more of that madman kind of behind the scenes thing than something for gamers. So did you ever fear that there wasn't an audience for it? Or did you think that like there are people out there who have an interest in games, but it goes beyond that and you knew that they'd be interested in the marketing side of it? That's a good question. I think that in all honesty, I didn't think that much about it at the time. And if I had thought much about it, I probably would have underestimated what the audience would have been. Like whether it's screenwriting or journalism or whatever, you know, I, I think that my initial instinct is to like follow that that old mantra of like write what you know and then also like secondarily like write what you like. Like if I like it, I would imagine that there would be other people who like it, with which is maybe not true. Um, but then as I started to think about it and talk about the project with people, I kind of started to believe that because uh, Sega and Nintendo were such cultural touchstones for a lot of people, and because a lot of those people my age and, you know, the late 20s at the time, early 30s, people who grew up in the 80s and 90s, that a lot of them had even stopped playing video games, but they still had this connection to that time period. So the fact that it was a game, uh, sorry, that it was a book that was almost incidentally about video games um, and didn't necessarily need to be marketed to a gaming audience I, I start, you know, I was pretty confident there was people out there. And, and, you know, I remember early on one thing I really liked that I would joke about to my then girlfriend and now wife was like, I jokingly referred to it as like uh, the comedy or the, the upbeat version of the JFK assassination. You know, here in America, at least for people of a certain age, like my parents and older, whenever you talk about the JFK assassination, 
everyone has a story of like, oh, here's where I was that day. I remember it. And every single person that I mentioned that I was doing this book on, whether I was researching this, they all had a story. And I really liked that, that, you know, as much as they wanted to hear about what was going on behind the scenes, their first instinct was like, oh, to make it to personalize it and talk about the time they went to Toys R Us or the Christmas where they finally got the game that they wanted. Um, and so those kinds of things gave me the confidence to believe that there was a lot of people out there who would be interested in knowing what went on behind the scenes. Hmm. Okay. So as the book came close to, well, I guess as the book was released, what was it like to have that finished product being sold and, you know, getting a lot of obviously some love from the video games industry and that kind of thing? I mean, it was surreal. It was life-changing in the surreal part. I still kind of feel that way. Like I, all, I, I've, I've seen console wars in bookstores before and and for like a, a half a second or a split second think like oh i'd like i'd like to buy that book and read it and then i'm like oh no i wrote that book like i still can't believe that i'm you know that something i wrote is actually published hmm. and that that this is what i get to do for a living and uh and it was really it was really cool you know one of the most surprising things to me about the book writing process um at least how i went about it was how uh isolating it was like it was really just my wife going to work and me being at home and writing for, you know, eight to 12 hours a day and calling up old pe people from Sega Nintendo and interviewing them or emailing, interviewing them. And it was like so much of me in my own head. Um, and then to actually get it out there and to get a response and to get largely a positive response was, was amazing. And then, and also there was like a part in the, this whole arc that I left out, which was after I sold the book and knew that I was you know, I got some money to write it. I ended up quitting my commodity job on my, it was my, on my 30th birthday. So my last day of ever working a day job was the day I turned 30. And so, um, you know, it was a very different experience for me, but from, to go from waking up every day at like 5.30 and uh, commuting to the city and then trading commodities um, to waking up at a time that's more convenient for me and uh, and doing what I like to do all day. So, I guess the book's coming in and, and you're getting to see the people's reactions to it. Were you surprised that there were some people who had an issue with the way that you'd written in terms of taking liberties with the journalistic side of it and kind of telling this story not as, uh, for lack of a better term, like a documentarian approach, sure. but more of a uh, storytelling, almost like a screenplay? I was surprised by that, but that I would say that's more just about me being naive than like, but basically, I think that there is some validity to that concern, um, though I was um, like I was surprised that people I guess I was surprised that it, that the reason people disliked it is because they thought that should be like almost like illegal in nonfiction and less and not so much <laughs> like if they didn't like it, that's fine. But the fact that they thought like that's not allowed seemed weird to me because there are a lot of books like that. One of my favorite authors was Ben Mesrick and he writes like that. And then also because um, I worked so closely with the subjects and shared certain materials with them to get their feedback and, and revise, not at their request ever, because that's not, you know, like a privilege that they have, but yeah. based on their advice to say, oh, actually, I said something that was more like this or actually went like that, that, that people, I was surprised that people thought that like, almost like I just like went off and was like, hmm, what's a cool dialogue to write? Um, yeah. <laughs> that, and and that, that's also partly my fault. Like my, I remember thinking that my one regret was that in my author's note, I wish that I had mentioned that I worked very closely with these people over the course of a couple of years to um, to get the dialogue, which was largely what people objected to 
right? Mm. And and I, I get yeah, I guess it, like from what I've read of the book and listened to in the audio book, it's it's a sense of like, how could he possibly know that this is how the conversation went? And that, right. like for some people who you know, I give you the benefit of the doubt and just assume that you're representing these people as they would be and and that you know them well enough. But some people might go. If he's making this up, then how do I know that everything's true? And I guess for some people that could be their issue. Right. And I think part of it, part of what surprised me, and, and maybe and maybe this did actually help me, was like, it's a 550-page book. There's, a, there's so <laughs> much research and information in there. Like, I don't know. If I was willing to do that, am I really just going to be like, well, then I'm just going to make up stuff because I think it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, and maybe that's why there was less criticism than there would have been otherwise. But I did feel... Like, hey, I'm not trying to like trick anyone here, and I, mm. I took this process seriously. But to that, but you know, there was criticism from like you know twenty to twenty five percent of people, and I and and that and I took that criticism to heart. And and you know, while the writing style is similar with my new book, I definitely wanted to make sure to better document my process and make sure that I was more clear about what happened, so that that. Hopefully that wouldn't happen again, but we'll see. The, the, I guess the other reason that I, I was a little surprised by some of the reaction was that there was the sense that, like, uh, like I remember one of the one of the negative headlines was like from the Telegraph, and it said Council Wars is hideously false. And <laughs> I'm talking like I remember one time within like a 24 hour period, and so I see that article. They give me like one star out of ten, and then within 24 hours, I was talking to Tom Kalinsky who was, I mentioned earlier, and then um, Diane Fournassier, who was the head of marketing on the Game Gear. And they're both telling me how the book just rings so true and it captures it <laughs> everything perfectly. And I'm like, wow, the people who were there think that this is accurate, but the people who weren't there think it's not accurate. But again, I think that that could be my fault a bit for not better describing the process or whatever. Um, and overall, thankfully, that was a minority opinion. And, uh, hmm. and most of the people... Um, have really enjoyed the book and and that has been surreal for me like uh has That's, been yeah. life changing and and I'm so glad it was with a story that I actually cared about a lot like I had been doing screenwriting for years and while I was always I think proud of my final you know anything I ever shared that uh that I wrote with my partner Jonah or or on my own it was not a process where every day I was excited to work on it. There were times when it was a real drag. Whereas with console wars, I do feel, did feel like every day I woke up, I was pretty psyched about working on the book and or talking to people. Cause there was so much interesting stuff for me to learn. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And I, I think like, it is really hard to put something out like that and be open to criticism in such a vulnerable way. But obviously that's part of being a creative person. And yeah, from the prologue and the first chapter that I was able to read of your next book, which we can talk about. Yeah, it looks like you have kind of adopted some of that feedback for this second book. And, you oh, know, you've thanks. made it very clear that, that this is uh, conversations based on all these interviews. And I don't even know if the book's going to be a different writing style necessarily, but it looks like you've made it a lot more clearer of what perspective it's coming from and the, the line that you're walking is that something that you intentionally sought out to do it's definitely intentional it was largely i've i've just thought a lot more about documentaries and um you know it's console wars in a lot of ways it's like a literary documentary you know it's meant to be as sturdy as a documentary record of that time but people mm. have so much um more trust in a in a film documentary as if that is like the truth but you know having 
made documentaries myself and working on a documentary for console wars, I know how easy it is to mislead people. You can take audio out of context. Um, and, and, you know, like I remember watching making a murderer, which was very fascinating. And my wife's like, Oh my God, this is ridiculous. He's so innocent. It's obvious. And I'm like, but that's because that's what they want you to think. Like maybe he is, but you can so easily mislead people that I, you know, I was surprised that, that there's just like this, uh, human instinct that when you see someone saying it, or you hear the audio, you think it's so much more true than when a third party is saying it. But I can kind of understand that because it's like at least you know where it's coming from. That's right. Yeah. But I so with the new book, I definitely tried to make like a literary documentary um, and be, you know, be clear about where the perspective was coming from, and also to as often as possible really like take myself out of the equation and let the characters and the situations be described in their own words and from their own perspective. Whereas like maybe in console wars, I would describe Tom Kalinske based on my perception Mm. of him, or maybe my impressions of him from other people, but I wouldn't couch it as such. I would just say, this is who Tom Kalinske is in the new book. I'd rather say, here's what this person thought about this person. It's not me saying like, they're the greatest. Yeah. And I wonder if that's kind of your background as a screenwriter instead of as a journalist, because as as like someone myself has a, I was a news reporter for seven and a half years. And like, that would be my natural instinct is to go that path. So I wonder if you've adjusted to, you know, your changing writing style. Well, that, yeah, that was definitely part of it too. I'm sure that part of why I was surprised by some of the reaction was because I was dealing mostly with film people. That was like who my reps were mm-hmm. and no one had an issue with any of this <laughs> stuff. So I guess you have your own little echo chamber in that regard. But, you know, at the time, it, some of it stung, but it was certainly a very healthy experience and one that, you know, I, I think any time that, that someone can present criticism in a way that is not personal or not, you know, derogatory for the sake of derogatory, um, at, at mm. the worst, it causes you to question what you're doing. And maybe your answer is, okay, I stand behind what I did, or I'm glad I did that, um, which, is, which is how I felt about most of the things uh, in console wars. And, and mm. I do think I'm a better writer for it. Excellent. So let's talk about this second book that uh, we've been kind of referring to, The History of the Future. It's got an unknown release date at this point, but it's something where, I mean, I'll let you describe what it is, but I think that it's going to be a lot of interest around it when it comes out because of, you know, the landscape of the gaming industry at the moment. Yeah. So the book is uh, The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality, and it should be coming out next month in February. Um, fingers crossed. Uh, just got to make sure everything finishes up okay. But uh, it is a, a very similar sort of approach, like a behind-the-scenes look at a company or companies during a period of time in the gaming industry that I hope will be as appealing to gamers and VR true believers as it is to people who just like a good human story or who want to see what the gaming industry is like. Whereas Console Wars, sort of like the real-time narrative was 1990 when Tom Kalinske joined Sega and they had 5% of the market to 1996, which was after they had surpassed Nintendo and started to fall back down and Tom left. Spoiler alert. Um, this story, this book covers, um, starts in, in April of 2012 with Palmer Lucky, who was then a 19-year-old kid building VR headsets and he is founding a company called Oculus. And then uh, it goes until... Uh, basically uh, mid-2017 after Palmer has been uh, fired from Oculus and from Facebook and just sort of taking a little bit of a look at the landscape. Mm. So if the first book was like Mad Men inspired, was the social network an influence on this? Because it's a <laughs> similar thing where it's a, it's not a movie about Facebook, it's a movie about 
startups and business and how that works? That's a really good question. Well, interestingly <laughs> enough, I would say that um, the biggest inspiration on console wars, as much as I loved Mad Men and still love Mad Men, was actually Game of Thrones, um, <laughs> especially the books. Because like, I remember being in the office okay. of, uh, of, of Olaf Olafsson, who had been at Sony Publishing back in the early 90s and was a part of the effort to make the PlayStation. And I had asked him what it was like to work with Nintendo when they were known to have like draconian licensing agreements. And this was back when Sony was a third party uh, licensee. Mm. And he described it to me as like being a slave on a plantation. And I remember thinking like, wow, like I would never use that language to describe a situation, but clearly like there was, he felt strongly about this and there was a, you know, there was an emotional element to it. And everyone I talked to from Sony and everyone I talked to from Nintendo and everyone I talked to from Sega each thought that their own company was like the good guy and everyone else was the bad guy and they all deserved to be like on this throne and it was bullshit that they weren't or that anyone was in the way and so it really just reminded me of Game of Thrones where especially because of how R.R. Uh, Martin you know has each chapter from a different perspective different character's perspective where you're sympathizing in one and feeling horrified in another um, so that was a big inspiration for console wars um and, and with the new book, I think, I mean, Social Network and the book that inspired it, uh, that's based on Accidental Billionaires by Ben Mesrick, has always been one of the biggest influences in my life. I think that probably more so the terms that I think about is that, like, whereas Console Wars was like, it, it's a story that talks about gaming, but really it's a story about people and it's about marketing. I feel like the new book is, you know, it talks about gaming, it talks about technology, but really it's a story about people and, and startups and entrepreneurs. Um, so like to the point that you made, um, like that's like, I, I hope that uh, this is the kind of book that young entrepreneurs will read and, and learn a lot from. I mean, ultimately, there's a lot to be said about <laughs> Oculus. Obviously, I wrote a whole book about it, but, you know, yeah. whether, you know, where they are now and whether they've succeeded and whether they've delivered on what they promised. That's uh, those are all interesting conversations to have. But just from uh a startup standpoint, they are the fastest company to ever have a multi-billion dollar exit. They sold the Facebook for $2.7 billion, like less than two years after starting. So I would, you know, there's no such thing as a template for a startup and every story mm. is different, but I think there is a lot of important, helpful lessons to learn from that story. Um, and maybe some cautionary tales in there as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in this because I haven't followed virtual reality that closely but it seems to have crossed over with my interest in console gaming with the psvr obviously being a really big thing for the past couple of years and i'm just curious where that's going and whether it becomes like a ubiquitous platform for gaming so i guess with uh, console wars obviously that's a story in the past and it's very much kind of a retrospective thing but this is a story that's still unfolding and there's people who are still in these positions they're not talking about a company they used to work for so sure. how did that play into writing the book deciding when to cut it off as far as the story goes and getting access to these people while they're still working at facebook or oculus or whatever it might be a uh, really good question because that was a, was a real big issue and, and something i thought about a lot as i was writing it like where is the story going how and man it was so much easier last time when I had the beginning, middle, and end before I started. <laughs> yeah. So for me, you know, say what you will about console wars, good, bad, or ugly, I do think that like everyone would probably agree that there's a real intimacy with the characters, which came from years of relationships with them and talking to them and really getting at their thoughts and feelings as much as the actions and and the facts around the story. 
And so I, I think that that is pretty critical to the kind of writing that I like to do, the kind of accessible content that I hope to create. And so I, I knew early on that while I was interested in writing about Oculus and VR, that I would need to get a really high level of access to actually be able to do it the way that you know, I would want to put my name behind and to feel like I could do a good job. And so um, not long after Console Wars came out, I contacted uh, Palmer Lucky at Oculus and, you know, let him, I told him that I was interested in writing a book about Oculus and wanted to know if it would be possible to, to get the kind of access that I want. And um, he then, I guess he was 22, 21. Uh, but anyway, he, you know, he said something that that I, I thought was pretty mature for a, a younger man, which was that, in his opinion, having not yet shipped their consumer product, Oculus hadn't accomplished anything yet, and that it felt like almost um, arrogant on their behalf to think about a book or a documentary or whatever, anything else. That being said, he acknowledged that there were a lot of people interested in writing about them, and he also said that he was a big fan of console wars, as were a lot of people at Oculus. Um, so he was open to having the discussion, and, uh, and then it ended up taking, I think, 14 months from then to actually get the access that I wanted. But in February 2016, I was granted basically like unlimited access to speak with the founders of the company and the employees at Oculus and Facebook. And this was one month before they launched the consumer version CV1 of Oculus Rift. So it was a really exciting time. And then the next few years, especially that year, went absolutely not at all how I expected or how they expected. <laughs> Why was that? Um, well, good question. I mean, like <laughs> th for a while there, between 2012 and 2015, they were the only game in town when it came to VR gaming companies. Uh, they were also uh, pretty undisputably perceived as the leaders of this tech revolution. And then they released their product at the end of November. Uh, sorry, sorry. They released their product at the end of March 2016. And then within the week, HTC, in partnership with Valve, released the HTC Vive. And I would say that most uh, gamers preferred the Vive to the Oculus Rift. Uh, Oculus also did not launch with any sort of hand tracking hand tracking controllers. You know, the, inner, the input device mm. that they used was a Xbox controller. A lot of people had an issue with that compared to the Vive, which launched with a pair of wands that track your hands and actually bring your hands into virtual reality. Uh, Oculus did end up having a product you know the oculus touch hand controllers which i think are pretty undisputably better than the htc wands but that didn't come until nine months later and a lot of people were like why didn't you launch with that they also had a lot they also had shipping delays um i said that they launched in the end of march 2016 but they didn't really they actually only shipped like a couple hundred units and uh and a lot of people who had ordered as soon as the the, the queue opened or had been fans of theirs for years and were expecting it like that first week. Some of them it took months to get, and that's pretty unacceptable for a company that had taken this long to launch their first mm. consumer product. And then, uh, you know, I would say the biggest thing in terms of all those problems are potentially solvable, or at least will probably be lost to the sands of time when, you know, you look back and don't really think too much about the context. But the, th the obvious thing that changed a lot was that in September of that year, um, some news came out about Palmer Lucky that alleged that he was like running a troll factory to help President or uh, Donald Trump, who was then the Republican nominee for president. And uh, there was a lot of inaccuracies with that story, but he ended up basically no longer being a part of 
no longer speaking with the media and no longer communicating publicly. And then six months later, he was fired from Facebook, though they didn't even say he was fired. They said that he exited the company and there was like this mutual mm -hmm. silence around it. So the, the long story short was that, you know, by March 2017, the one of the main characters of the book was no longer even at the company that he had started. And, and it was hard to figure out why that had happened, uh, because to your point, you know, people were still at these companies, they're under agreements, and even the ones who had left had signed uh, NDAs and gag orders and whatnot. Mm. Um, so, so getting at the truth of that was tough, and also just figuring out what that meant and where Oculus was headed was pretty tough as well. Well, that's all sounding pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not what I expected. That's good. Hopefully makes for a really good book. Uh, and I'm interested what you think the future of uh, VR is, you know, the book aside, like, is that something that you feel like you've got a really good perspective on after talking to these people so much and being so deep in the weeds with virtual reality and the technology and the companies behind it? Um, I probably have, uh, you know, more familiar with that than the average person, but I also feel like my enthusiasm might have blinded me a little bit. I think early on, I remember talking to that same literary manager I'd entered earlier that like to me that this was akin to the beginning of the PC revolution, which started, I would say, like in the late 70s. You have Apple and, and sort of going from hobbyists to more of a mainstream audience. And in that, you know, why I like that comparison is because, you know, Apple was successful in the late 70s and PCs started to get on people's radars, but it wasn't, at least from my family, until the mid-90s that we even owned a personal computer. So, um, you know, as much as you would call PCs in the late 70s and early 80s a success, it was not really a mainstream success. It wasn't the kind of thing that everyone had. It was more so for businesses and or for wealthy individuals or for people who were interested in gaming maybe on it. So I had and still have kind of like a long view with virtual reality that, it wasn't going to be the kind of thing that uh, was going to be in everyone's homes for for Christmas time, but the I think the excitement and the dollar amount of the Facebook acquisition uh, really created a lot more hype for this than I would have expected, and it also led to Oculus getting away from what had been their roots, which was the gaming, and so, and and I think that there was a lot of comparisons about. And Zucker, the book even starts with Zuckerberg himself making this comparison uh, between uh, VR slash AR and, and the mobile phone revolution and sort of thinking that this is going to be a similar trajectory to that as opposed to the PC revolution, which took like 15 years. So uh, that's a, probably a long-winded way of saying that I'm as <laughs> bullish as ever on the future of, of VR and of AR, which is augmented reality. And it's like, you know, whereas VR is completely immersed in a digital computer-generated world, AR is an is overlaid over your current reality, sort of more like Terminator vision, but they're pretty similar technologies. You know, I, I still believe in both of them, and I still believe that they will probably be a big part of gaming, but I don't think it's going to happen very soon. And I think the past few years, even after these headsets have come out, the fact that it's been a slow adoption are, are indicative of that. I'm really impressed by, by Sony PlayStation. You know, they're a, it's a very minimal part of the book, but, you know, if you look back at, the original promise, or not promise, like sort of like the messaging that Oculus had, um, their specific campaign slogan on Kickstarter was like step into the game and just sort of what they seemed to be offering people that was so tantalizing at the time was speaking to a gamer audience and was removing the screen and letting, screen and letting you step into the game and really this like ultimate gaming experience um, that from a messaging standpoint, they at least definitely got away from that. 
And what PlayStation has done is much more similar to what I would have expected Oculus to do. You know, they've got mm. great original um, and exclusive content on there, and they have really um, not tried to be everything to everybody. And 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 I think that their fans, uh, their consumers, have been rewarded for that. Yeah. Right. I wonder, was there a temptation with the access that you had to Facebook to actually steer away from the topic of VR and just find out about that company itself and Facebook and some of the mysteries that exist in there? Because I imagine that there aren't a lot of people that have access to them. Yeah, no, there definitely was. And I think that, you know, the end result, the book that came out of it is almost like a, uh, a backdoor look at Facebook, unlike anything I've seen before. So maybe the social network is a good comparison. Like, <laughs> like I think that if you were to divide the book into thirds, like it's like, uh, you know, the first third is about the origins of Oculus. The second third is about building the company. And then they, you know, the final third is after they've sold to Facebook. And I think that through the lens of these inherently, you know, outsiders um, coming to Facebook and, and, you know, being uh, indoctrinated to that, uh, cult-like atmosphere and seeing it through their eyes is a very interesting look at Facebook. And then, then even just what happened with Palmer, the fact that he is no longer at the company, the way that they dealt with that situation, the way that they dealt with that situation, given that Facebook proclaims that they're such an open and transparent company and were absolutely the opposite internally, like let alone external messaging of what really happened, but just internally, they were so there was so much deception about what was really going on and, and, and such a lack of honesty and integrity that I think it really paints a picture of Facebook that, that became to me, you know, almost as important as the VR aspects by the end of the day. Yeah. That's fascinating. Before we forget and move on to the next couple of questions, I want to know, you know, that meeting with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg way back with Console Wars, I think the most recent thing I read a couple of weeks ago was that a TV series is now in the works. So how did that uh, kind of shake out? Was it something where you just hand it over to them and then hope that it comes together? And, you know, you see a lot of deals being made and rights being acquired and nothing ever comes of it, especially when it's something to right. do with the, you know, the world of video games. Um, so I guess, yeah, just talk about that whole experience because it's, you know, it's Seth Rogen. Sure. <laughs> you know, so typically what you're describing is very commonplace, like the rights to books or board games or whatever it is, you know, get acquired and then they kind of just sit around for years um, and nothing really comes of it. I, my situation in a, in a very fortunate, fortunate way was different from the beginning in that, before the book proposal even went out, before the book was sold, that was when I had that meeting with, with Seth and Evan. And so they were on board from a very early stage. And, and then it was also different because, um, because Jonah and I wanted to direct a documentary, which they agreed to finance and would produce. Um, so, you know, while there was a difference between the documentary project that we were making and the dramatization film project that they were making you know it's a similar six-year period of story that we're covering similar narrative beats so there was a close collaboration from the very beginning and what had happened was I met with them in that January of 2012 they called back later that day and said that they wanted to be involved with uh, making a movie based on the book and also to support a documentary that the one that we wanted to do Um, I thought wow my life has changed this is like the best news ever but I was back at my day job four days later on Monday. Uh, things had not changed yet. You know, the, the next few months we wanted, you know, 
how were we going to finance this documentary? How much money was it going to cost? Is Seth going to write the Console Wars movie? Is he going to star in it? Is he going to direct it? What's, what's going to happen? Uh, and then in the middle of all that, Seth and Evan went off to New Orleans, I think, to direct their first movie, which ended up being called This is the End. I think it had a different apocalypse title back then. Um, we sort of like lost mm-hmm. touch with them. And, you know, for me, especially because I wanted to get out of my job, I wanted everything done yesterday. But at the same time, I was so grateful that like you know these guys were even interested at all that i was like i kept saying like this is so annoying to wait but i would happily wait like five years i guess it ended up taking longer than five years but like you know when you're dealing with people (laughs) of that caliber um things take a little while longer but it's totally worth it um and i you know I'm, i'm so happy that we stuck with them and so what happened was they ended up meeting with scott rudin um, who had produced The Social Network and a lot of other of my favorite movies that were based on nonfiction books. And uh, he, he joined the project and brought it to Sony, and Sony um, purchased the rights to produce the movie for Seth and Evan to probably direct at that time is what we were thinking, or what they were thinking, um, and for Scott to produce as well as Seth and Evan. Then during, you know they went off and started developing film project, and we worked on the documentary um, and we were in pretty close contact through that time. Uh, then along the way, I don't know exactly which year or which point, but they started to think about it more as a, as a limited television series. It's probably, it's, I, I think, I don't know if it was inspired by it, but we often talked about the OJ Simpson show on FX, uh, mm. just being like a really great adaptation and uh, true life story that was, I think that was done over 13 episodes and that was, um, you know, maybe gave, us and them the confidence to think about this more as a series uh which to me it was like music to my ears because you know the book is super long it's 550 pages yeah <laughs> i i'm sure that they're oh, I, I have enough faith in their talent that they could have made a great 90 minute movie but i know that what that would have entailed would have been not entailing a lot of people it would have been cutting out most of the characters cutting out most of the story beats that i think are important to hit you know a 90 minute story so the fact that it's now going to be i don't know how many episodes it's uh, but you know let's say even just say if it's 10 episodes that's so much more screen time so i'm really excited about it and then uh you know flashing forward the the short version is that in early 2018 um seth and evan brought on a screenwriter named mike rosolio and a director named jordan voigt roberts and jordan is probably familiar well, to most moviegoers, he did, you know, he's a great director and he did Kong Skull Island most recently, but especially the game fans, he's doing the Metal Gear movie uh, and he's a huge gaming oh, yeah. fan. And then those guys uh, put together a great pitch and they went to go meet with some studios in, in mid-2018 and there was a lot of interest. And then, uh, then Jonah and I, my co-director on the documentary, went to go meet with those studios and talk about the documentary and screen some of what we had shot. Um, and then we ended up selling it to Legendary Pictures to do as a television series. And uh, right now, uh, you know, our screenwriter, Mike Rosolio, is working on the script, uh, working on the pilot script. And then from there, it'll probably go to uh, Legendary. We'll probably bring it to distributors like Netflix or Apple or whoever. And we'll figure out where the home's going to be sure. and who's going to be in it. So pretty exciting. That is exciting, especially, I mean, it seems like everything's happening at once with the next book and with the documentary. Like, do you think that the documentary and the TV show are both definitely, like, uh, is it at the point where you're confident they're both going to come out? I'm, I'm definitely more confident now than at any point I've been in the past seven years. Um, <laughs> but I've learned yeah. enough to, like, you know, who knows, everything could change in a day. 
but I'm glad that we mm. are. No, I'm really glad to be working with Legendary Pictures. It's clear, you know, that this is not the kind of thing that they're just acquiring for the sake of like, oh, that's a good thing to have somewhere. You know, they're very interested in actively sure. doing this, and especially given that that you know how much the documentary means to me personally and to Jonah that they see that as a complimentary thing. You know, there's a way that they could look at it where one might cannibalize the other, but they loved what they saw and seemed pretty psyched about moving forward with that. And then also going back to the O.J. Simpson comparison, I think that the success of the five-part O.J. Simpson documentary, in addition to the FX series, probably helped us a lot mm. to show like, hey, look, there is, you know, if it's a story that enough people care about, um, there's definitely an appetite for both um, formats. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's probably, you know, really good for the people out there who uh, are like, uh, I'll wait for the movie. And yeah. <laughs> so what would you say has been the hardest point of getting uh, to where you're at now where, you know, you're able to work on these big projects and, you know, sell a book idea a lot easier than probably selling your first script way back in the day? I think that when I get involved in a project and I've had only a few, especially a few successful ones in my life, that, you know, for me, it's it's such a tunnel vision experience. Like when I was writing console wars for those three years, especially the year and a half after I left my job and that was my full-time focus, like that was the only thing in my world. And just like for the past two plus years and really the past three years, like this new book has been the only thing in my world. And like getting back to what you were saying earlier about this one happening and playing out in real time as opposed to something that happened 20 years ago, you know, that, that was the biggest challenge was like how to put this together mm. and, and how to do so at a time when, because I am so interested in the VR, you know, space and like my echo chamber is all the VR sites talking about new games or trailers or stuff that's coming out. Like to me, I remember there was a period of time where it was like every day I was reading about some new company that's supposed to like change the VR world. And like, where this new game that's going to like be the killer app and, and it was like almost like overwhelming, like how do I cover all of this or like how do I, you know, put my eggs in the right baskets? And and the more that I noticed stuff like that happening, the le you know, the more I thought it was actually important to shrink the scope of the book. And maybe that's where the Mad Men thing comes from, like the why I think that, that one is like so central to this, because like I was thinking if I was going to tell a story about advertising in the sixties, instead of you know, showing every different company and all the different cool ads, it might almost be better to see it from the perspective of Sterling Cooper agency. And like, you know, you can show what else is happening at other agencies. You're not just restricted to what you have there, yeah. but you get to see it through other people's eyes. Um, and so shrinking back the story and making it and making Oculus not, you know, not really just like one of the companies, but like pretty much the company. And then the different perspectives were amongst employees there. That was like a, a pretty important decision for me to make. And then it's just been really stressful to to get the story, even with the access that I had, given that it was still unfolding and people are bound by agreements and there there is incentive to be dishonest at times for some of the people. Right. Um, that would be quite a minefield to navigate because it's your name going on the book and I guess you want to take people at their word, but you don't want to put anything out there if you've got suspicions about whether it's accurate. Right. I would say the one, you know, and, that, and that's a tough lesson to learn because you talk to all these people and almost everyone is nice. Everyone seems trustworthy at first. And, and sometimes even when they're lying, it's an interesting story that you're being told is a lie. One that you can <laughs> imagine like on the pages that would read well, but I never want, I never ever want like a reader of mine to, 
to think that I'm putting it, you know, to read not the truth. Like I was told a lot of interesting things that I, that I didn't include because I believe them not to be true at the end of the day. Um, right. and, and fortunately the one really big difference in a good way between console wars in this book was that back in the early nineties, you know, email wasn't a thing or at least it wasn't a thing internally at Sega, but yeah, like, whereas with this book, I literally read through over 25,000 company emails. And so as much as I felt like I have a good journalistic instinct for who's being honest or who's embellishing and what all of that, like as much as I, you know, at the end of the day, the most important source to me was the primary documents more so than even the primary sources. Um, Cause even people in acting in good faith and who probably would pass polygraph tests might not even remember things correctly, but you know, email doesn't lie, and uh, having access to all of that and to really seeing how things played out was hugely important to getting the truth of the story. So Facebook said, "Here's our servers." Or like, oh, how did that, how did no, that work? Definitely not. <laughs> uh, it was definitely, yeah, they would be horrified if that happened. Um, <laughs> but it was people at the company who I developed trust with over a couple of years, saying, "Here's all the records," and I'd rather, like, actually, a, a lot of people felt that what they were doing was historic or the the non-arrogant version like they felt like they were part of something special Hmm. and and i was really impressed by how many people had the mentality of i'd rather you see this even if it makes me look bad at times like i'd rather you have the truth and report that than report like what makes me look cool um not everyone felt that way by any means but there were enough people there um and then what happened with palmer um a lot of people at the company felt that he was getting screwed over uh, regardless of what political affiliation they had. And so people uh, were, to my great delight, you know, were more than willing to like help get documents to me and to make sure that I was not reporting certain lies because they felt that the truth was important. Right. Uh, there's so much that we've uh, been able to cover today, Blake, but what would you say is your advice to people who want to follow in your footsteps, whether it's, uh, successfully writing a screenplay or a book or, you know, being able to produce some kind of documentary? I would say that it's to, as much as I can properly convey what I learned from that Sasha Baron Cohen experience, <laughs> that there's a lot of people in this world, there's a lot of people that are more successful than you and more talented than you, and me, of course, as well. Uh, but, you know, like, so, so you're not, you know, the odds of you finding a project that no one else is sniffing around and that you are going to, you know, be alone in working on it are, are pretty minimal. So make sure to work on things that you love um, and to really just follow your curiosity. Um, I think that was another big thing that I learned with both books. Like, I remember, like, I, early on with Consorts, people my girlfriend was like, oh, is this going to be a book? Are you doing a documentary? Whatever. And it was like, we'll figure it out. As long as I just keep following my curiosity, I think good things are going to happen. And to go back to the social network in a different context, (laughs) I remembered like uh, probably annoyingly quoting to people like what what Mark, Jesse Eisenberg said in that movie about like, um, he didn't even know what Facebook was yet. Like it's too early to start selling ads and, you know, basically to just follow the story. This book absolutely turned out going turned out to be going in places that I never would have expected and maybe wouldn't have been interested in covering. But, um, you know, I think as long as, as long as you're really curious about something, it'll take you to interesting places. And, 
and and that's been the biggest lesson for me and and you know one i think is worth uh trying to impart to others mm. you'll also be happy you know like i <laughs> as with console wars this new book it has taken me to really weird places it has shown me some pretty ugly sides of people and of companies but i was you know every day i was pretty psyched about working on it it was never like a drag it was always something that i really liked to get up and work on and talk to people and figure out what was going on and so um you know maybe this could you know doing that sort of thing could only be a part-time job or whatever but like it's it's always great when it really is a passion project no doubt that's a good lesson i think and like something like the dictator screenplay would you ever go back to that you know considering you had such a a great deal of of confidence in it until you know sasha baron cohen swooped in because i mean it's been a number of years (laughs) since that movie came out and it wasn't exactly you know a box office jam like borat or something right (laughs) no it's a good question because joan and i talk joking joke about it all the time like has enough time passed that we could do something like this now or maybe uh maybe the protagonist is a is a female maybe that changes the whole perspective Mm. on it um I'm kind of out of the loop in the screenwriting world, but I do think that was a good script and I, uh, it's, it is worth, you know, I should talk to Jonah more seriously about re <laughs> Okay, cool. So that kind of leads me into the last question that I ask everybody and that's if you could do anything and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you do? I would do nothing. The whole point, the whole reason it's fun is because you might fail, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just, I'm just reminded, I, like one of my favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone, strangely, I was recently looking it up to try to make sure that this was a real episode, and strangely, I think it's also Donald Trump's favorite episode of, like, television. Hmm. It's the one, it's this one where uh, sort of like a gangster character who, who's a gambler, he starts winning, and uh, he never loses. Every single time he plays, he wins, and he realizes that this is not uh, heaven that he's in. Oh, yeah, I should say he dies, and he dies, right. and then he starts winning. And they think, at first he thinks it's heaven, and then he realizes, no, this is, this is hell to always win. <laughs> and I remember him talking to like who he, the guy who he thinks is his guardian angel and says, but, but I keep winning. This isn't, this isn't fun. <laughs> um, and the guy says, well, would, would you like for us to arrange for you to lose? We can do that basically whatever you want, sir. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. So um, <laughs> maybe I have, because I have so much love for that episode, it's hard for me to answer your question. But, Should I um, rephrase it to like what, what's the yeah the, rephrase it okay <laughs> what's the dream project that uh, you would tackle if you knew that it was gonna do well yeah I mean I guess it's kind of tough because you know half jokingly aside about the fun of it as being the risk of failure mm. is like I mean I really have these are my two dream projects yeah um, like I like I remember maybe maybe this doesn't answer your question but this will <laughs> be a good surrogate for it. it was like I remember after console wars. It, I was really curious, like, what am I going to do next? Um, I didn't think that there would, I would find a topic that was as interesting to as many potential readers as Sega Nintendo, but that was fine because, you know, that book will always mean so much to me and that was fine. But what I found was that a lot of the topics that kind of interested me um, and I, where I thought there might even be interesting stories and books, I'd start talking to the people at those companies or who had been there and I just really did not, like, I did not... I did not like them and I did not admire them or what they did. And I kind of started to realize like, man, I spent three years on console wars. I ended up spending three and a half years on this book. Like writing a book is such an intense and often intimate experience. And clearly like one that takes a long time that I didn't want to waste my time writing about people who 
didn't inspire me or who I didn't really like. Um, so I'm going to answer your question with more advice yeah. and say um, to try to find stories with people who, who either inspire you or who, who you admire, at least their work. You don't necessarily have to admire them personally, but you know, I think that, that, I think that was key to getting involved in two projects that I really do consider dream projects and why it was that like every day I did enjoy it because I was dealing with people um, who, who drove my curiosity because they were doing things that I admired and because they were, often very interesting and kind people hmm. very good thank you blake this has been a long episode it's because it's such an interesting uh two kind of stories we've been able to look into or three if you look at the the console wars the vr book and your story itself there's kind of three different things we've been able to get into uh, so thanks for that because you know as someone in this in this uh community of, of gamers and people who appreciate what happens behind the scenes there's not a lot of journalism into that and there's so many mysteries and stories that we want to hear like you know what happened with Hideo Kojima and Konami and you know will ever, anyone ever write a book yeah. about that so it's great to see uh people like you taking on that challenge of getting into that world that's I guess often closed off yeah it's you know part of the reason that it happens is just because it's very hard like I mm. I don't think it's because it hasn't occurred to people yes but <laughs> because I had such a you know because I've been so um, fortunate with how things have turned out and because also it, it was such a challenge at first um, with getting a publisher to believe in a video game book I I always try to make myself available to any journalists out there or storytellers out there who are interested in tackling stories in the gaming space so you know if anyone has a question for me about how to get started or wants me to read something and provide feedback and I promise I won't steal your idea <laughs> I genuinely want to help you know I'm 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 always very happy and open to speaking with um, people who are interested in the space as well and maybe want to, to create content. There you go. Uh, well, I'll say good luck with uh, the publication of uh, The History of the Future and Thank the you. TV show, the documentary. There's a lot of things hopefully we can see coming out soon. And also thank you for being a supporter of this podcast because I've seen you, I've noticed the uh, retweets and some of the stuff that you've been putting out there on Twitter and it doesn't go unnoticed. Oh, thanks. Well, thanks for doing good work. That doesn't go unnoticed either. Thank you for listening and thanks to Audio Technica. If you want to follow Blake on Twitter, he's at Blake J. Harris NYC. His new book is available as of the 19th of February, so pick that up if you want to support him. And you can support this show if you enjoyed the episode by leaving an iTunes review, maybe a five-star rating, or you can head over to 8bit.net slash P-I-W, that's A-T-E-B-I-T, and that's where you can either leave a review or pick up some sweet putting in work merchandise, as well as check out the rest of the awesome podcast content from the 8-Bit Collective. If you want to get in touch, you can follow me on social media at Jono himself. And until next week... Keep putting in work.